Hello gang, welcome to Hardcore Country. My name is Harley R. Padgett. My name is M. Fear. This is Grit and Glitter. It's a weekly podcast. New episodes every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, and they're all about the topic of women's professional wrestling. Whoa, crazy. It's, uh, it's a thing. It's, it's not a genre. It's just uh, folks of marginalized genders wrestling. Yeah, you know, and I mean, on this show, we like to cover wrestling of the now. So oftentimes it feels kind of redundant to like, you know, be spotlighting uh, women wrestlers in in an age where so much, especially in the independent scene, so much wrestling is, you know, wait, who am I kidding? We still have the same problems. Look, we're going to be talking a lot about like weird booking and odd booking and and pigeonholed booking and like, and, and the way women were treated in the WWE up until like maybe like five, six years ago. Um, But let's cut the, let's cut the crap we still have an issue of getting women on cards. We have an issue of getting women um, more than one match on AEW Dynamite. We have an issue of getting women on more than one token match on your average indie show. Some of my favorite indies that were reliable about having women presence consistently on each of their cards have just had shows that there were virtually no women featured. I wanted to go into this with, like, aren't things so much better now? And, yes, some things are considerably moved along. But, man, do we still have a lot of the same problems. Every couple months on this podcast, we do a special episode in our series, Living Legends. This is a series that we conceived last year to essentially give some of these women their flowers while they're still with us, while they're still wrestling, to let you know why these people are so good, so great, where they came from, everything they've gone through, and why you need to be paying attention to what will likely be the last few years of their careers. Previous stars of this series include Veda Scott, Mercedes Martinez, Jazz, Gail Kim. This week's episode is about your new Impact Knockouts champion, Mickey James. Not her first time on that particular rodeo, but yes, recently reclaimed title holder, Mickey James. Harley, I got to ask you, like, before we dive in, like, were you that familiar with Mickey James, like the, the full extent of her career before, you know, doing this deep dive into into her history? I'm not well acquainted with TNA at all. I don't think I watched TNA in its like X Division, AJ Styles, Christopher Daniels heyday. I don't think I watched it at all during the Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff era. So whenever we do a series like this and the woman in question goes to TNA for an extended period of years, it's a blank spot for me. I don't know if I've seen any Brooke Tessmacher matches in my life. There are a lot of women. Madison Rayne is a name that I know, haven't really seen much of. That's always a dark spot for me. WWE style, yes, I knew everything from Mickey on this list. But also stuff like the infamous Laycool feud. I haven't seen this footage in 10 years, 11 years. You know, I watched it back then in the day and I haven't gone back and revisited it since. Yeah, I mean, aside from what I knew a little bit about, you know, her time in TNA and just having like, you know, understanding that she had been a part of WWE during a time that I definitely wasn't watching consistently. Um, I really didn't know much about Mickey James aside from like her like recent couple, you know, her recent like year, two years of like Renaissance. So uh, this was a really fun introduction. Um, in some ways, it was a really uh, it was a really informative one because, man, if I got emotional last week, 
I had not known the extent of what she had been through with certain storylines in WWE. And so if I had had that context last week, watching that magic against Jordan Grace and then having to talk about it, I think I might have been even more emotional, if that's possible. Mickey Larie James is born August 1979 in Richmond, Virginia. Her dad's a landscaper and a wastewater treatment worker. Her mom's a teacher and a real estate agent. They have Mickey, they have a sister, and then they divorce. Mickey's parents end up remarrying, and so she ends up with an additional half-sister, half-brother, and three stepbrothers. She spends her childhood in the small town of Montpellier, Virginia. She's raised Christian, Southern Baptist, but she's Native American through her mother's side. Uh, they are part of the Mattaponi tribe, which are a smaller part of the Powhatan tribe, which is obviously well known to Disney fans as being Pocahontas' tribe. Mickey is a descendant, a part of Pocahontas' tribe. Her grandma grew up on the res, and her mom also spent part of her early life there. And she starts to explore this Native American side of herself later on in life. But as in her childhood, what it really translates to is grandma also has a 47 acre horse farm where Mickey spends a lot of her time. At as young as the age of four, she's learning how to ride, she's learning equestrian sports and horses. Horseback riding, being out in the hardcore country really becomes a part of her for the rest of her life. She plays violin for five years through middle school and high school, which really gets her interest in music going on from a young age as well. And she's interested in singing, but she doesn't have the confidence to get up in front of people and perform. Ironically enough. <laughs> Throughout high school, she's still, she's a horse girl. We've, we've all known a couple of horse girls in our middle school days. Oh yeah. Mickey's a horse girl and she intends to pursue horse training as a career because she knows that without a scholarship, college isn't gonna be an option. That's not affordable. Throughout all of this, she's also a wrestling fan. Her and her dad have been watching wrestling together since she was a young kid. She's a fan of Ricky Steamboat, Randy Savage, Ric Flair. Honestly, whenever we do one of these Living Legend episodes and we do some research into women wrestlers from this time period in the early 2000s, 2010s, it feels like Ricky Steamboat, Randy Savage are always two names that come up. I mean, they were the biggest names in wrestling during when she would have been coming of age or like some of the biggest names. Um, but I can definitely see, see the steamboat, especially for her. Um, I can see that influence as far as like the type of character arc that she has often played, like, especially in her, like, you know, in when she was, you know, in the first probably 10 years of her career and first like 10, 15 years of the career. So like, uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But again, like these are just big names. I mean, like these were influential across the board. Sure, but you hear guys like the Young Bucks talk about how much they loved Hogan. Or you hear guys talk about Shawn Michaels. 
the women, it feels like, are always talking about Savage and Steamboat. I never hear any of these women talk about how much Ultimate Warrior influenced them or how much they wanted to be Earthquake or Dino Bravo. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, you have you have a point though, because uh, Trish Stratus obsessive fan Mickey James, there's some Randy Savage in there. Sure. There's yeah. some like there's some crazy eyes Randy Savage there. Yes, absolutely. I think not to say that Savage and Steamboat are playing feminine characters, but I think the characters they're playing can translate into a feminine version, maybe a little bit easier than, say, like an ultimate warrior archetype, at least for wrestling of that time. So out of high school, with college not really an option, at the age of 20, one of Mickey's friends suggests that she apply to a wrestling school in D.C. She ends up joining, actually, Kaida Pro Wrestling out of Virginia. She debuts for them in August 1999 under the name Alexis Lurie. Kaida Pro in Virginia is still around today, and that's actually where people like Sahara Seven and Jocelyn Navarro still wrestle today. Hey. So at first, Mickey debuts for Kaida Pro Wrestling as a valet for Tommy Dreamer under the name Alexis Lurie. Alexis was part of her stage name when she was a dancer, and Lurie is her middle name repurposed as a last name. That's a very common thing, I yeah. feel like, in, in acting in many different mediums. Take my middle name and use that as a first name or a last name. Yeah, absolutely. And Alexis is just, like, such a name of that time of, like, if I'm going to name a female wrestler in 1999, Alexis is a very... Is a, there's a lot of Alexises in wrestling. So she starts valeting for Tommy Dreamer in Kata Pro out of Virginia, and at the same time, she's attending workshops to work on her own wrestling and to continue to learn how to grow as a wrestler. She's basically signing up for anything she can find. She does a workshop run by Dory Funk Jr. She does some sessions at the ECW Dojo. She attends training camps from Ricky Morton, Bobby Eden, and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat himself. My favorite Rickies. March 2000 is when she wrestles her very first match. It is an intergender tag team match. Alexis Lurie teaming... teaming with Jake Damien to take on Mike Brown and Candy. Oh. That's all I have. I can't find any of one of these other three people. I was going to say, did, did Jake Damien or Mike Brown or Candy become anyone of uh, major note? Not not according to Cage Match. Apologies to Candy. Oh, I'm Candy. We hardly knew you. Alexis Louis is wrestling for Kaida Pro. She's wrestling on other independents throughout Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey. This is 2001, 2002. Three, obviously independent wrestling doesn't pay a livable salary. So she waitresses at Olive Garden as well. And she also poses nude for a couple of magazines, uh, including Naughty Neighbors and Lake Show. All of these photos are online now. I don't know. I haven't really heard her speak too much today about the photos or about that time period. I don't know if she's embarrassed by them now or if she just owns it and feels like, you know, I need the money. I was young. It, It is what it is. I couldn't really find any commentary from her about this, but internet being internet, they are everywhere. I mean, I'm sure that there was a point in time where in her career where people maybe used that history against her, but like in today's landscape of performers utilizing their bodies in whatever ways and selling them in under their own agency. um, I really hope that she can look back on that and, you know, understand the choices she made were the choices she had to make at the time. And uh, I hope that she understands from a modern context that it is the de- definition of like like 
not a big deal. So she's wrestling all over in the early 2000s. As I said, New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, she wrestles a young Beth Phoenix in Beth Phoenix's first match ever. And in 2002, she starts appearing for Ring of Honor. Now, we all know Ring of Honor never had a thriving women's division, but they'd have a couple of women here and there doing work with male stables frequently, and that's what ends up happening for Alexis Lurie. She joins Ring of Honor, she does some valet work for AJ Styles, for Joey Mercury, for Christian York, and she has some matches. She has a little a little feud with Alice in Danger, and she picks up some singles wins over Sumi Sakai and Becky Bayless. Evan Hand, Sumi Sakai. And at the same time, she also debuts for Total Nonstop Action, because ROH and TNA have a working agreement at this time, too. They share a lot of the same talent. Styles is wrestling... Styles is a TNA guy, but he's wrestling for ROH. CM Punk's an ROH guy, but he's wrestling for TNA, vice versa. So TNA launches in 2002, and for those who forget, they started with weekly pay-per-views. That was their format. Once a week, a pay-per-view. For the NWA's new promotion, Total Nonstop Action. Alexis reappears on the very first TNA pay-per-view ever, June 2002, just as uh, just to be announced that she's going to be competing next week in a lingerie battle world. Uh, it's 2002. Well, it's, it's 2002. Guys, it gets worse. So. So she ends up wrestling on the very second TNA show ever. It's June 26, 2002. NWA total nonstop action number two. It is the Miss TNA lingerie battle royal. It's Taylor Vaughn who wins the Battle Royal, but Alexis is in there mixing it up with women like Daphne and Francine and a bunch of other people who haven't stood the test of time. Yeah, I mean, this is 2002, so we're still in the dust. Of, we're, we're still really in the, the dust post-ECW era. So some of these names would have been like late era ECW regulars, and that includes some of the women. So uh, a lingerie Battle Royale. Um, is not out of the realm of what might you've seen in late era of ECW when it came to their women's content. Um, yeah. So Alexis does the lingerie battle royal, and then she dips out of TNA, goes back to ROH, does some stuff there for nine months. She will return to TNA uh, the next year, early 2003, and this time she's back fully clothed for some actual wrestling matches. She teams up with Amazing Red, and the two of them have a little feud with Trinity and Kid Cash. And as wrestling is wrestling, this kind of spins and splinters off into her having a singles match with Trinity. It's TNA number 39, April 2nd, 2003. It is Alexis Lurie versus Trinity, the first match on our watch list. Again, it's 2003. So we've got bikini-clad cage dancers on the, on the stage. We've got Alexis Lurie in black leather pants, a skimpy top. She's looking the skinniest I've ever seen her. I mean, it makes sense. She's like 22, 23. Yeah, this is, I mean, she is an, like, she's a, a baby at this point. But, like, this is the smallest we, we see her in any of this. She's got red lipstick. She's got her hair slicked back. And she's the heel. I'm judging based on the crowd reaction to Trinity, at least. Yeah, I think. I actually could not tell. 
It felt well. It definitely felt like Trinity was a babyface because the crowd was loudly behind her. They're chanting for her, and she Trinity did like some significant, like babyface, you know, like like crowd pleasing moves. Uh, she does a tilt whirl head scissors. She does a tornado kick. She does a moonsault. Like this is all very that stuff that the, the crowd's gonna cheer for. Yeah. Okay. Lurie, you know, she she does some things. She has a lot of kicks. That's the other thing I have to contextualize to myself is I'm like it's 2003. A lot of women's wrestling at this time was was you watch a match and it's just you kick each other a bunch, you you hit some clubbing blows to the back, a chop, maybe a clothesline. There's not you, there's not really a lot of moves beyond that for women's wrestling. I mean it's better than the old moolah playbook, but yeah, it's it's still it's still fairly simplistic. Although I I like. I like the straightforward style that Mickey works throughout, like throughout most of her career. I mean, she still uses versions of those moves. They're just polished and perfected. But like, I, I, what I really like about Mickey's style is that it reminds me kind of, of classic UA wrestling. There's a lot of it that like, you know, she goes for like a half crab and it's like, it looks really good. She's got great form, but it's basic. It's fundamental. Despite the cage dancers, despite the fact that we had a lingerie battle royal nine months earlier, I was impressed at how professional and respectful Mike Tenney and Don West were on commentary. There was no sort of Jerry Lawler mannerisms here, no Vince McMahon like dismissiveness of the women. They called this like a straight wrestling match. They treated the women with so much respect. Absolutely. I mean, this match completely holds together and there's not really anything super probable. I mean, aside from like visual aesthetics, which like that's just part and partial to the time. Like there's nothing really troubling about any of this. The only part of it that gets like kind of that I get that I kind of ended up getting under my skin, irritating. And I understand it serves a storytelling purpose, but at some point, like late in the match, Raven comes out, parks himself just in the corner of the ring, like not outside of it, inside it, while the women are still wrestling. Yeah, that's classic Raven, though, right? His, him sitting in the corner on the ground there is that's how you think of Raven. <laughs> In, in this pose, even in this post-ECW, post-WCW era. Yeah, and, I, and again, like, it serves a story because he's recruiting, he's ex, he's recruiting Larry, but, like, uh, it's still, like, I don't know, there's something about him doing that in particular to a women's match that, like, kind of, I didn't love. Yeah, well, and this draws out Kit Cash, who has been teaming with Trinity in this feud with Larry and Amazing Red for a little while here. But Cash comes halfway down the ramp, sees Raven, and says, eh. And then turns around and walks backstage instead of coming to Trinity's aid. Trinity picks up the win with a, I guess it was like a standing corkscrew splash. Yeah. I was actually somewhat impressed by Trinity in this match, considering I've never heard of her before, and she hasn't done really anything after this. Yeah, I thought I thought, thought both women were perfectly good. This is honestly, I'd never seen this match before. And if you had asked me to guess, like, a 2003 era TNA um m- women's wrestling match i would not have told you would be this this solid this unaffected they go six minutes and 40 seconds which is two to three times longer than some of the wwe matches we'll be covering a couple years later honestly well yeah (laughs) oh no (laughs) trinity picks up the win post-match raven grabs her drops trinity with a dv with a ddt his patented even flow ddt and then he kind of takes Louis by the hand and pulls her off into the crowd and 
walks off with her. Yeah, uh, pulls her off. Like, my toddler taking me into another room. Like, literally, like, she she's not struggling exactly, but, like, he is completely moving her. Yeah, I like that. I like the way that they both played it, though, because he wasn't dragging her like, no. against her will. Like, he wasn't kidnapping her. He was just like, come on, let's go. And she's, like, clearly, and she's not, like, fighting him. She's just confused, like, what, why are you out here? What are you doing? Where are we going? Sort of thing. But I, I, I yeah, I, I like that. I like how they played that. Yeah, it, it was good. Like, it's setting, the his presence is setting up a story. It, it, I'm sure it's paying off in one way or another, as I believe you, uh, you'll, you'll be telling us in just a moment. Yeah, so the whole reason he's out here is he's starting a new flock, so to speak. He's starting a new group that he's going to call The Gathering. And Alexis Louis is the first member, which is always very cool for like a woman to be the first member of an otherwise all male stable for her to be the first recruit. And, you know, I don't know, maybe they would have gone that way down the line and made it a romantic thing. But in the time that Louis is actually in the gathering in TNA, she's not Raven's girlfriend. She's not there as his love interest. It's not why he's recruiting her. She's recruiting her because he's like, oh, this chick looks sick as hell. She's a good wrestler. Okay. Yeah, that always, to me, gets a faction off to a, a decent start. Um, I mean, uh, she wasn't their first recruit, but back in the early days of the Dark Order in ADW, when they were, like, randomly recruiting occasional jobbers, and they did the whole thing with Anna Jay, and Anna Jay getting um, beaten in her first, like, televised match against uh, Abaddon, and then they, like, the Dark Order recruited her, like... That was really early on in that faction. Like, they'd only done, like, one other recruitment, I think. Maybe two. And so it was like, okay, cool. We're establishing early on that they are looking, that this faction in particular is going to have both men and women's talent, which is, I, I mean, you know my stance on that. So I'm always more interested when that happens. So Raven recruits Alexis Lurie. Shortly afterwards, he recruits Julio De Niro as well. And then a little while later, he recruits CM Punk into the gathering the gathering is complete julio and punk essentially play like raven fanboys like they're huge uh, they're, they're hugely obsessed with raven they think he's so cool and they just like want to be a part of him and do whatever he wants and this leads to de Niro and alexis Louis teaming up a couple of times they team up and they take on daisy hayes and matt seidel in a traditional tag match and we also get Alexis Louis and Julio De Niro taking on Jeff Jarrett in a two-on-one handicap Clockwork Orange House of Fun match. This is Raven's patented balls to the wall, weapons, anything goes match. But this time it's Julio De Niro and Mickey James versus Jeff Jarrett in a handicap match. <laughs> what would have come next, where the gathering would have gone, what this could have done for Alexis Louis, we'll never know because as soon as this starts to get going, she gets signed by WWE. So Alexis Louis has been sending tapes and letters and faxes and carrier pigeons to WWE for years. She wants to go to WWE, she grew up watching WWE, it's the dream, she thinks she'd, she'd be good for them. She's pushing, she's pushing, she's reaching out. Finally, in August of 2003, they sign her. They say, we'll pay you $500 a week, and we're going to send you to Ohio Valley Wrestling, our developmental territory. So Alexis Lurie debuts on OVW television. She keeps the name Alexis Lurie, but they tell her, quote, drop the country accent. 
because, quote, it makes you sound ignorant. Mm. She doesn't realize she has an accent, a Virginian accent. She doesn't think it's that prominent or noticeable. But they give her that note, hey, you sound ignorant. And so she works on it. Oh, I don't know that it ever really took. <laughs> For the best, honestly. In OVW, she spends 2004 wrestling women like Gail Kim, Melina, Jillian Hall. And then interestingly, in 2005, she's entered into a tournament to crown a new OVW television champion. This is a mixed gender tournament with intergender matches. It's OVW, but it's WWE's developmental territory. So it's technically WWE intergender matches. Bizarre. She beats Mike Mondo in the first round and then gets decimated, just like total squash by from Bobby Lashley in the second round. It's like a, it's like a, a 30 second match. She hits a power slam and it's over. That's, I mean, it's kind of what I would expect if it's a Mickey James versus Bobby Lashley match. But still, this is kind of fascinating to me that this happened at all. Oh, and many, many years later, they would team together during that infamous mixed match challenge that they did on Facebook Watch. So that was, oh, that's a fun yeah. callback. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Who knew that history? See, we're all learning something tonight, ladies and gentlemen, and folks and peoples. So Alexis Louis is in OVW from 2003 to 2005. She spends most of 2005 feuding with Beth Phoenix, her old, uh, her old stomping ground mate from the Indies. Up until the fall of 2005, when she finishes up to, with OVW and heads to Monday Night Raw. She's been in OVW for two years, and arguably she hasn't needed to be there for two years. Not like some of these, like when they hire the models and they bring them in, who, and they have no experience. Even Trish Stratus came into WWE, never wrestled a match before. She was a fitness competitor. James came in already seasoned. She was ready to go. Yeah, and not just seasoned, but also tele- Like she'd also already been on television, essentially. So like it wasn't even about like taking a wrestler from the you know strict independence and you know, making sure that they're TV ready because like she'd already done that. So for the two years she's been in OVW, she's been slated to be called up to Raw and SmackDown multiple times, but it does each time it ends up not happening. They say that she passes all the check marks that they're looking for in terms of like in-ring skills and look and wrestling abilities and all that. They just don't have a story. They can't find this story for her that they want in order for her to debut. So she starts pitching ideas. She says she pitches dozens and dozens of ideas. And she's like, oh, finally, they liked idea number 39. What if I come up and I play like this obsessed like fan, which is not a far cry from what uh, her friends Julio and CM were doing with Raven in The Gathering. Her idea is what if I play this obsessed fan who like befriends and then stalks Lita? Lita and I are friends. We already know each other. We've met before in the past, and we get along well, so that that could be fun. But at the time, Lita's a heel on the main roster, so they feel like, eh, I don't know if this story really work with you like being a fan of this heel and then you guys working. But we like the idea. We're going to make it Trish Stratus instead. Trish is the biggest star in the women's division at this point. She's already a multi-time champion. She's the most popular babyface in the company, so... Alexis Lurie has no complaints about this. She's like, okay, yeah, great. Make me, you know, put me in a story with the, the number one woman in the division. So she debuts on Raw October 10th, 
2005 as Trish Stratus mega fan Mickey James. Why they chose to drop Alexis Lurie after using the name in OVW and why they chose to have her wrestle under her real name, I haven't been able to find. Because I was curious about that during the Gail Kim episode as well. Was why was Gail Kim allowed to wrestle under her real name when everybody else gets a name change? Victoria, Jazz, Trish Stratus, Beth Phoenix. These aren't their real names. So why do Gail and now Mickey, why do they get to keep their names? No clue, honestly. I mean, I could see making a name change, period, based on wanting to like start afresh with the storyline with Trish going from OBW and into the main roster of WWE. But like, I, I don't, I don't totally understand how they got to keep their actual names or necessarily why they would. Uh, it certainly works out, but it's, it is like it's few and far between the performers, male or women or or any wrestler uh, who you know, gets to work for so long under their given name. Yeah, for Gail and Mickey, it really adds to their icon status because we've seen them wrestle prominently in top spots in multiple promotions and it's always under those names. They don't need to do a mercedes Monet style rebrand where they have to come up with a new name and sell people on it and get people to stop using the old name. They've always just been Mickey and Gail and that really adds to their mythos in a way. Yeah, they've, I mean, no matter where they've been and people follow them from promotion to promotion, knowing that like whoever they're going to see there, they're going to see that they're going to, they, they're a known quantity wherever they are, wherever they show up. Mickey James debuts October 10th, 2005 on Raw. She's a Trish Stratus mega fan. As WWE likes to do, they have her start teaming with Trish. You know, they, they do this often. They just pluck a fan out of the crowd and let them wrestle a match or two just, just for fun. Oh yeah, you know. So they start teaming together, but it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that she's maybe a little unhealthily obsessed with Trish and maybe goes beyond just regular fandom to the point where she's costing herself title opportunities. I mean, her she eliminated herself and Victoria in a battle royal so that Trish would retain the WWE Women's Championship. And then she starts using Trish's signature moves in her match. She uses... Trish's chick kick and starts calling her the Mick kick. But December 12th on Raw, Mickey versus Victoria, one-on-one, number one contender. Mickey picks up the win, meaning that we're now going to get Mickey versus Trish for the title. Two weeks later, it's a special Christmas episode of Raw. Mickey infamously kisses Trish under the mistletoe. And from that point forward, it's, oh, she's not just like obsessed with you, like thinks you're the coolest and wants to be you or wants to cut your face off and keep it in a box like oh she's like in love with you too yeah it's a it's definitely like upping the anti single white female style they get their match it's january 8th at new year's revolution trish defeats mickey to retain the title but that's not like the end of their partnership mickey's still hanging around she's still being clingy trish is really uncomfortable at this point she's ready for them to move on and go their separate ways and you know, we'll see you in the locker room. We'll see you at catering. We'll do her own thing. And it seems like she's going to get the chance because Mickey's got a new antagonist. Ashley Massaro has started calling her crazy. And Mickey doesn't take kindly to that. So Mickey and Ashley start feuding. They have a match at the 2006 Royal Rumble with Trisha's special referee. Mickey picks, picks up the win over Ashley. And then March, at Saturday night's main event, it's Mickey and Trish teaming up 
to take on the tag team of Victoria and Candace Michelle. So Trish, to her credit, has been doing her best to humor Mickey for five months now to like placate her and be her friend and keep make it clear that we're just friends. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm flattered that you're into me. I'm personally not bisexual. I, I like men. Like, let's just keep this as a, a partnership. But by March, Trish has had enough. And she tells Mickey after the match, we need some time apart. Mickey says, you'll have it. But I want to say goodbye the right way. And she goes for a hug. Trish kind of recoils. And that's it. Mickey loses it. Mickey attacks her, hits her with a bulldog, lays her out in the ring. And now we're into chapter three, I guess, of this little story. Two nights later on Raw, Mickey James has a present for Trish Stratus, as they captioned it on WWE Network. <laughs> we we come out of the commercial break. I love WWE. I don't know why I stopped watching. Oh, There's a giant box in the ring, like a huge box that takes up the entire ring. It's gift wrapped. It has a bow on the top. And you're like, okay, how did this box get into the ring during the commercial break? Like, did a bunch of men come out? Did they take the ring ropes down? A bunch of men, like, wheeled it down to the ring on a dolly and then lifted it up and slid it into the ring? Like, Mickey clearly didn't bring this out herself. She carried it out, Harley. She's very strong. What are you talking about? <laughs> I have more questions. We'll get to them. So there's this giant wrapped present in the ring. And cue Mickey. She comes out. She's wearing black heel boots, red skirt, black top. She's got earrings pigtails and she's sucking on a lollipop it's unsettling suggestive it's suggestive of what though i don't know because at this point in the story we we assume that the mickey james character is a lesbian but the but none of this reads lesbian yeah no pigtails and sucking on a lollipop is like that's that's fully for the male gaze yeah, it, it's it's really visually confusing. I mean, we're talking 2006 era. If we're going to go like lesbian stereotypes, we're not going look at this like infantilized hot lady with a lollipop. I mean, it does make her look a little crazy. It does. It does like do that. It's unsettling in a way that works for that effect. I just yeah, I wasn't really sure sure what the story of this this uh, this costuming gear uh this, what this look story was well despite coming across like a reject from but i'm a cheerleader mickey's out here with a microphone she says trish i've given my entire life to you we could have been beautiful together but now we're gonna fight at wrestlemania i'm gonna take your title and i'm gonna have my own legion of fans and young women looking up to me and i'm gonna you know treat them the right way which is kind of like, it kind of has some weird subtext as well, because it seems like she's implying that she's like looking forward to having the roles reversed and looking forward to being able to groom a bunch of her fans when she's the champ. Yeah, I hadn't read it that way originally, but in conversation about this, yeah, the the wording on that is very uh, suggestive of, of that. So she the box it, it's not it's not an actual box like it doesn't she doesn't open it it just raises on chains up to the roof of the arena I guess and underneath there's what appears to be a person sitting on a steel chair completely covered and ensconced in a black drop cloth this brings up Trish 
Trish runs out, but as Trish is running down the ramp, Mickey pulls out the drop cloth. It's Ashley Massaro. Full on skater girl, mall, mall punk Ashley Massaro, bound and gagged on the chair. And Mickey tells Trish, stop, don't come in this ring. Or I'll do something to Ashley, I guess. Or I will, like, hit her. Like, it's it's very funny because it's like they're ostensibly all wrestlers involved in this and like literally i think her threat is like i will i will hit her i will kick her but she doesn't get kicked every week for a living (laughs) right (laughs) like oh no don't hit this professional wrestler well as evil villains are wont to do james gets caught monologuing and trish pulls her to the floor (laughs) uh while this happens Trish takes the opportunity to try to untie Ashley, but Mickey jumps her from behind. Somewhere in all this melee, Mickey's got a bloody nose, which really just adds to her thing, adds to it. I don't think it was purposeful at all, certainly not knowing WWE, knowing how uh, they book women, but Mickey having blood dripping down her nose and onto her lips and stuff just really adds to this angle. Oh, yeah. I mean, she looks like completely unhinged. It's, it's fantastic. So Mickey lays Trish out with the DDT, says do you love me now kisses the unconscious trish stratus blows her a kiss and our closing shot before we go to commercials is yeah unhinged mickey with blood dripping down her nose to the fact that her the blood from her nose has started to stain her teeth red yeah this rules actually (laughs) like the, the the whole the whole segment is worth it just for this shot it's so cool i want to see like i want to see someone reference it like in in a in a show i think it's it's so cool well really shades of when becky lynch had her nose busted open by nia jacks i believe and that became like an iconic shot as well yeah or like when when baker got busted open by sheeta in like well, I think one of their big first match matchups and they made like a, it was such a great image and they made a t-shirt out of it like it just yeah you know when women share the color like there's always these like insane conversations about it treating women wrestlers like they can't work blood matches just like men do but you know it makes for really effective imagery and like we can go back as far as you know 2006 and look at Vicky James in this moment and say like that was really fucking effective in a in a segment that is not really about wrestling at all there's no wrestling involved but like just because she gets bust up the hard way that we get this like indelible image with her in blood and it it connects our brains to the fact that yeah she's a professional wrestler 17 years later if you still ask people like mickey james like biggest few biggest moments this very first feud with trish stratus is still one of the top ones that people talk about and it's because of segments like this right like we'll talk later on she does a lot of stuff in TNA. She has some really good matches. She has long title reigns, but she doesn't have any feuds or like stories that people talk about today, like they do this one. Yeah, I mean, you're gonna come in with a with a first big story. This is a pretty meaty one to do. I mean, it's got like you know, it's got your problematic trappings, etc. But like, you can't deny the fact that they gave her something to do. They gave her something pretty pretty hefty to do and then you know it culminates with some with a major win both mickey and trish are really into the story they both really love doing it loving having this character work and these beats to sink their teeth into and they really maximize that as well somebody else in the same role could have done a really embarrassing job and really made it cliched and one note and not as captivating for the fans 
Yes, absolutely. But uh, uh, credit to both of the women because they make the storyline work. Now, I still have so many questions about how during the commercial break they got Ashley Massaro into the ring and handcuffed to a chair or tied to a chair and then a drop cloth around her and then a box lowered around her. How did they do all this in front of the live crowd with nobody? Did Mickey carry Ashley over her shoulder, roll her in the ring, sit her on the chair? The, the fans in the front row weren't like, hey, what's she doing? Nobody stopped her. They put Ashley Massaro in a like large duffel bag. They put the duffel bag into the ring. They put the box over the bag and then Ashley Massaro did the rest. This takes us in to WrestleMania 22, April 2006, Mickey versus Trish for the WWE Women's Championship. When we had Jason Norris on the show last year to talk about the women of WrestleMania, his book, he said this was the first great women's match at WrestleMania. I think most people would probably agree with that. And they're in a good slot as well. They're not... I was afraid revisiting this that they were going to be in a come down spot like right after a big men's match a big yeah. title match or they were like the second last match for people to go take a, a bathroom break before triple h hits the ring something like that no there's 12 matches on the card they're number seven so you know later in the night but not not the last not second last not like sandwiched between two other ones and they're actually following booker t and charmel versus the boogeyman so if anything, that's a come down match, and this is a bring back up match. That's like a comedy, like goof four minute thing, and now we're into like a, another real match on the show. Yeah, one hundred percent. I was really impressed by the book, the the placement on the card for this match too, and it and it goes for. I mean, what? How long is this match? Eight minutes and forty eight seconds, which is reasonable for this time period. Respectable for this time period, you know. I mean, is is it gonna? Is it going to set any modern standards? No, but it is it is certainly something given the time period and given given the state of women's wrestling as a whole, given the state of women's wrestling elsewhere in WWE, this is pretty impressive. I'm always happy to give Jerry Lawler's horrible commentary the attention it deserves when it does, but I'll give him some props here too because early on in the match, he draws a comparison between Mickey James and Mark David Chapman, John Lennon's killer interesting yep who was also uh -huh. like you know an obsessed fan who loved this person so much and then that somehow turned into wanting to destroy them yeah uh frankly it was a uh deeper cut reference than i would have expected from jerry lawler so good on him it's only 848 it's 2003 so yeah maybe not up to some standards of women's wrestling in 2023 20 years later but for the time period great match Trish is pissed off to start, understandably so, after everything. Like, she's aggressive to start the match. She hits a Thez press. She's chopping Mickey all around the ring. It's only when she they're outside the ring and Trish goes for a kick, Mickey ducks and Trish kicks the ring post, that the tide starts to turn in Mickey's favor. Where is the crowd loyalty at this point? The crowd is riveted. Like, they're very invested in this match. But they love Mickey. Now, hmm. Yeah. I want to say, though, is does the crowd love Mickey or are there a vocal male faction in the crowd that loves Mickey? I think the crowd is into Mickey because, like, even in specific spots where, like, we get a big crowd response to her eventual win here, spoiler alert, like, 
we're in areas where that would have necessarily pick up if they were if they were based in one section or like you know diffused around the the arena. So like I think the crowd is largely behind Mickey here, which I love because <laughs> they're rooting they're rooting for somebody who's like her. She's actually not really the good guy here. I mean, hey, there's a bunch of men in the crowd who saw this character who's obsessed with the WWE Divas and wants to kiss them and just, like, can't can't get over them. And they said, wow, I really like this character for some reason. I don't know why. She, she just speaks to me. I really relate to this insane fan who, when <laughs> not given what she wants romantically or professionally or anything... Uh, reacts aggressively and uh, suddenly turns on the person that she adores. Uh, yeah, I don't know why. I just it really connects with me for some reason. Yeah, even late in the match, Trish hits a running powerbomb, which gets boos from the crowd because they're just so into Mickey. Like they love what she's been doing over the past five months. Yeah, I did not expect the crowd to be behind Mickey. I, I did not. One thing that has been edited out of WWE Network and Peacock is there's a moment in the match, which you might not know about, where Mickey grabbed Trish between the legs and then licked her hand. But what? this has been edited out in uh, subsequent airings because, and Mickey actually got in trouble for that backstage. They said that was too far. That fucking rules. <laughs> I knew you'd like that. Mickey James is so fucking cool. <laughs> Yes, I do. I think that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. In the end, I, I believe there's one other edit out near the end as well, because right before the finish, we get a quick, like, weird close-up of fans in the crowd, and then we jump back to the ring. I'm not sure what happened there. But in the end, Mickey ends up kicking out Trish's injured knee. She's been working over the knee and the leg all match, and then ends up hitting her with the Mick kick for the win. New champ. New champ. Coming out of WrestleMania, the feud must continue. The next month at Backlash, Trish gets a rematch. Trish wins, but via disqualification. Mickey purposely gets disqualified for choking her with a wristband. So Trish wins the match. Mickey stays the champ. And this continues into June. June 26th on Raw. One more match. Mickey beats Trish again to end the feud. And it will be the last time they ever face in singles competition. They never end up running it back. That's that's a shame, honestly. Rare to get a feud that works so magically. Yeah, but they got a good eight months out of... Not even. Yeah, eight months, nine months out of this feud, which is a lot for especially women's wrestling in 2003. Yeah, fair. And uh, for whatever reason, you know, following... Apparently, like, I guess maybe Trish was an outlier because after this, the Mickey James character is never shown expressing romantic interest in women ever again. In any other company. She wasn't really bisexual. She's like, just really into Trish Stratus. Hmm. We've all been there. We all, you know, straights, shout it out. Who's your, like, who's your, who's your one free card? Who's your one, you know, like, oh, well, I'm not, but I would bend the rules for so-and-so. I don't know what that's like. I bend the rules for anybody. But, like, maybe you're out there and you're like, well, one stiff drink and a lonely night, I would definitely go home with so-and-so. You tell us. Maybe that was maybe that was the deal with Mickey James' character here. Trish Stratus was just her, like, one, her, her one hall pass from her heterosexuality. Mickey holds the WWE Women's Championship for four months before losing it to a heel Lita that 
That all gets done raw after Lita hits her with the title belt behind the referee's back. And due to this, Mickey turns babyface. I mean, not just do that. Also, due to the fact that the fans love her and can't stop cheering for her. <laughs> they were like, well, we got to figure out something because these idiots are not reading the room here. So Mickey turns face. She starts feuding with Lita. And that November at Survivor Series, November 2006, Mickey defeats Lita to win the title for a second time in Lita's retirement match. Lita would never wrestle full time again after this. Oh. <sighs> She was dealing with their own shit during that time. 2007, Mickey starts feuding with Melina, and in February, Melina beats Mickey to take the title off of her. They run it back March 2007 on Raw, Mickey versus Melina for the women's title in the very first women's False Count Anywhere match in WWE history. Whoa. I didn't put this on the watch list, though, because unfortunately, late in the match, Mickey falls off the top rope and lands on her neck. She's not seriously injured, but they do rush to the finish, and so the match doesn't turn out quite the way that they had hoped. I um, I respect the decision not to include that, and also I personally thank you because I do not want to watch a botch like that. One month later, April 2007, at a house show in Paris, it's a three-way match for the Women's Championship champion Melina defending as Mickey James and Victoria and Mickey pins Victoria to win the women's championship for a third time at a house show at a house show in Paris France Paris France a real one one that actually happened remember the fake one was that Paris France that it happened Rock and Robin won the title and legitimately in France but there was no house show in Egypt that was there are, thank you <laughs> Egypt sorry apologies Mickey pins Victoria, becomes the new champ for the third time, but Melina says, hey, I was the champ, and I wasn't pinned. I want a rematch. And so an hour later, Melina pins Mickey to win the title back. Mickey James goes into the record books for the shortest title reign in the history of the WWE Women's Championship. Yes, this is not not the DDT Ironman Championship, which regularly gets tripped hands over a period of like an hour. Um, This is... And this is something with slightly more stature at this point in time. Following this, Mickey doesn't do a heck of a lot for the summer or fall of 2007. She's a bit on the back burner. By December, her old rival, Beth Phoenix, is the champion. Mickey challenges her at Armageddon, but Beth retains. And they continue to feud through the winter into the spring of 2008. Finally, April 2008, on Raw, Mickey beats Beth to win the championship for a fourth time. They continue to feud, Mickey and Beth, Mickey and Beth. They've been feuding in OVW, on the Indies, in WWE, for years and years now. This takes us to SummerSlam 2008, a classic WWE trope. It's Mickey James, women's champion, and Intercontinental Champion Kofi Kingston teaming up to defend both their titles in a tag match against Glamorella, Santino Morella, and Beth Phoenix. Whichever team wins, wins both titles for their team, even though it's a tag match and not a singles match. And in the end, Mickey takes out Santino with a DDT. Let's hope he, for, he forgot all about all that, because he's the new director of authority for Impact now, and that could be trouble if he holds a grudge. But Mickey takes out Santino with a DDT, only to get hit with a glam slam by Beth. Beth pins Mickey. Beth and Santino are your new women's and intercontinental champions. A month later, Mickey guests on the TV show Psych. I never watched Psych. 
Ah, yes. The story of a fake clairvoyant and his assistant solving crimes. Oh, okay. I know nothing about Psych. I assumed it was like a medical show or something. No, no, no. Psych was during like, I think this is kind of crested now, but like USA, the, 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 I don't know if you have USA in Canada. Actually, that's an interesting it's, question. It's the Canada think? network here. Do you have the USA network? <laughs> we don't have USA network, but a lot of the shows air on other channels here. USA, uh, as their tagline says, characters welcome. And um, this was during the like peak of the characters welcome era, where Psych was one of their like big like flagship shows during this point in time. So yes, it uh, is a series about a man who solves crimes. Um, he just has like a high amount of intuition and empathy, like empath skills, in, uh, high observation skills. But he's not actually psychic but like he passes off as psychic powers to solve crimes and yes this is the seventh episode of season three called talk derby to me that mickey james uh features in she plays an evil roller derby girl i hear yes sean and Gus our main characters help an undercover uh their undercover friend juliet solve a string of robberies connected to a roller derby team which she has recently infiltrated as their newest member it's actually it's i have actually seen this episode i didn't know i just Mickey James it. Fall 2008 into spring 2009, Mickey's just doing a, the WWE women's division thing. You know, one week is a 10-woman tag. Next month, it's a six-woman tag. At the pay-per-view, it's a big 25-woman battle royal. Things like this. Nothing, mem- nothing memorable, nothing meaningful. It's not until summer of 2009 that she starts to get back on track. July 2009, Night of Champions, Mickey defeats Maurice to win the Divas Championship for the first time, her fifth singles championship in WWE. She holds the title for three months this time before losing it to Jillian Hall, and later that night, she's traded from Raw to SmackDown. This would not seem to be a big deal. A lot of trades happen this time of year. People go from Raw to SmackDown to freshen up storylines. On the surface, I would have assumed that's all it was. Send her to SmackDown just for some new scenery, some new opponents. But no, she's told that she's being sent to SmackDown for disciplinary reasons. What are those disciplinary reasons? Well, rewind. In 2007, Mickey was engaged to a fellow wrestler, Kenny Dykstra. They were engaged for about a year, year and a half. That relationship ended, allegedly, when Kenny found out that she was cheating on him with John Cena. He talks about this a lot in interviews now, and he's clearly very salty still and very biased, so it's hard to take everything he says at face value. But this is what he says. It has been confirmed that her and Cena were involved in a relationship at some point around this time. The next alleged bit of news is that after Cena breaks it off with Mickey, she gains a bit of weight, and in order just to make life easier for John, not having his, his ex around, not having to see her, she gets sent to SmackDown. Mickey debuts on SmackDown October 23rd. She picks up a win over Layla, and as a result, becomes a target of Layla and her partner, Michelle McCool. This whole storyline centers around Mickey's supposed weight gain. This reeks, this reeks of punishment storyline. Yeah, that's the thing. Is This isn't Mickey pitching, hey, what if I do the storyline where I'm a crazy obsessed fan? This is men in the writer's room 
saying, hey, you know what would be a funny storyline? What if they call her Piggy James and they make a bunch of pig jokes every week and they talk about how fat she is and we can do some, we can do something with food and we can do like a Looney Tunes sketch, a little like cart and a little like animated uh, Newgrounds sketch on the big screen, things like that. And they do one week. They do this like really like for a million dollar company. You're like this is the best you can do. Just poorly animated video. Michelle McCool dressed like a farmer, and they have Mickey's face like superimposed on a cartoon pig. And McCool does. She's supposed to sing this parody of Old MacDonald Has a Farm, but it's like she's never heard the song before because she's so off off the rhythm and like so like can't keep time with the song. Uh, Mickey gets a title shot. She challenges Michelle at TLC that December, but loses because Leah interferes. And we get more of these segments every week, just them calling her Piggy James over and over. Leading into the next segment on our watch list, January 22nd, 2010, Smackdown. Michelle McCool and Layla throw a party. Ah. Out of the break, uh, they cool her in the rain. They've got a table. There's a plate of cookies. There's a giant bowl of pudding. There's a bowl of punch. There are two cakes. One. Two cakes felt excessive. Why two cakes? You have a big pig, and then you have a sheet cake with a smaller pig on it. Because she's so fat, you have to have two cakes. Mickey's going to eat one of them by herself, and then you have one for the other people. I don't want to like tell the writers how to do their jobs here, even though this was absolutely awful and I like should have been written way better. But the funnier joke here is one giant pig cake. Not like a whole thing of food. One giant pig cake is much funnier. Like a fudgy the whale, but a pig. Yeah, like if you're going to do this, at least you have to try to make it comedically on on point. Like if you're going to make a, if you're going to make crass jokes like this, at least do it well. And it's so bad. It's so bad. So they say the party is a going away party because after tonight, Mickey's leaving Smackdown forever. It's not Mickey who interrupts, though. It's Maria. Single name, Maria. Just Maria looking radiant. She comes out. She calls him annoying. There's uh, some back and forth between Maria and Lay Cool. It goes on too long. But I thought Maria was actually really good on the mic here. I was impressed for how like in, how much in her infancy she is. Yeah, I thought she was great on mic. And like, I, I know this is like reducing a female performer to like pure visuals here, but like, I, we has this come up in conversation when we've talked about Maria before like a ridiculously stunning human being like ridiculously stunning um and, and it's embarrassing honestly because like she's in there and she's like not even trying and she's like beyond gorgeous and I'm sorry but Michelle and Layla look like just like the worst mall versions of themselves in this promo in this segment we know Mickey's obviously going to come out eventually to tie things up and presumably set up a take match for next week or something. So we're waiting for Mickey to come out. I'm watching this segment by itself in 2023. I, I didn't watch every week of TV leading up to this point. I haven't, I've just, I read about what happened and then I'm jumping in here to watch this one segment for context for the purposes of this episode. So I don't know what Mickey looks like at this point in time. All I know is that she's supposedly put on some weight and that they've been calling her Piggy James for, a, this is January, for three months now. They've been doing this. So I'm expecting Mickey to walk out through, through the curtain. And my reaction in 2023 to be like, 
okay, yeah, she put on like three pounds, like five pounds. Like you, you can tell, but who cares? Like she still looks great. She still looks amazing. She's still like average or below average. Instead, she walks out and I'm like, the hell? She looks exactly the same. She looks exactly the same. She looks the same as she did last year. She looks the same as she does today in 2023. But the, what? What are they talking about? Yeah, I mean, she she looks she she looks perfectly fit, like perfectly fit. She's the exact same weight she, as Layla. For other things, like if they want to do like, and I, I guess they could have the commentators point that out to be like, oh, look, look what a hypocrite Layla is. Like she looks exactly the same as them. But it's just it's so weird. Yeah. I mean, Michelle McCool is ridiculously skinny and like this is peak low rise era. So like both women's like pants are just above their crotch line. So it's like pure, like skinny waist, completely flat. Um, Mickey has and ha- had and continues to have the tiniest bit of belly, like the tiniest bit of belly, like in your best era of fitness you had a bigger belly than this. Like I'm talking to people who aren't Harley, who is stick thin, tiniest bit of belly, but she's always had that like from, from even her earliest days, like the tiniest little bit. So like that's there. Other than that, she like, there's nothing to distinguish her between her body, between her body and their bodies. Like she's also a female wrestler who, um, has a bigger, like is, has a bigger and broader chest than other like female wrestlers of that era. But like, that this was not uncommon for women to have, you know, either women wrestlers during this era to either have by choice or to be cajoled into boob jobs. So like that isn't rare either. There's no distinguishing her body versus her undesirable body coded undesirable body versus their apparent desirable bodies. None of this, like visually none of this makes sense from a, from a 2023 lens. None of this, none of this makes any kind of sense. Doing a story where the heels bully another woman and call her fat and make fun of her would ar- arguably be in bad taste if they did it with Awesome Kong or Piper Niven. But at least it would like make sense to an ex- to an extent. This just doesn't make sense. Like it just like this is like so weird. It's like they might as well be be, be saying like, oh, and your hair is like really horrible too because there's there's no there's no nothing to work with here, which I guess is. You know, I'm sure if you ask the people in the backstage, they'd be like, oh, yeah, that's what makes it good heel work. You know, it's it's clearly a lie. And like and you're booing them. And you don't like this segment. So it's working. Is it working because the crowd is like genuinely appalled or is it just go away? heat? just like you women are you people are being annoying. Like we're just we're sick of you being irritating. None of this is funny or amusing because you're not none of this is funny your music like it's not it's not even that they're booing their particular moral actions it's just that they're they're disliking the segment's tone from these women because they are irritating mean girls mickey says she dealt with girls like them her whole life they're nothing she pities them this is what a real woman looks like i don't like that either though there's always weird subtext it's like you all look like women yeah i mean but i do i do like that she follows up with like i look like a real woman like uh maria looks like a real woman which is bullshit maria is like a goddess given from from on high like that's not that no one looks like maria canalis um but that like the audience they are real women and like i kind of like that that's like if you're going to be a face like that's a good cheesy face thing to do 
So the two teams throw hands, then Beth Phoenix runs out. She looks conflicted, but she tosses Maria from the ring. The heels triple team Mickey. Phoenix and Layla hold Mickey so Michelle can shove the cake into her face. Then they dump a punch ball on her head. The end. The end. Uh, again, you have two cakes. Why? You're only going to use one of them. The much bigger pig cake would have been much more effective. I'm just saying, if we're really going to have this segment, you should have done it well. Also, just saying, this also doesn't make sense of Beth being aligned with these mean girls because Beth is arguably the largest woman in that ring. I guess that's why she looked conflicted. Yeah. Also, she just doesn't like, I mean, on a personal level, she doesn't like Mickey. They've been feuding for years at this point. So maybe she's reluctantly like working with the other two just to. Please don't don't cancel or send me like angry letters. Like Beth Phoenix also looks incredible. Like there's nothing wrong with her body at all. Just it, just by pure like pure comparison sake to make this storyline jive somehow. That's all I'm saying. No, please do not send me your angry letters. I adore Beth Phoenix. As of this one wasn't bad enough. The next week on SmackDown, Michelle op- issues an open challenge for a title, and it's answered by Layla. She's wearing a fat suit with Mickey James's ring gear over top and a little uh, pig nose. She comes out eating a donut and they have a little comedy match. Michelle pins, quote unquote, Mickey. Um, so after you told me that this was what followed this whole party thing, my um, my morbid sense of curiosity caught up with me and made me go and find this. And uh, I'm going to I'm going to be completely honest. It's much more offensive but it's also a better segment. It drags less. It's actually, it's, it is, it is very crass, horrible way. It's a little funnier. After all of this, Mickey has to go over Michelle for the title, right? And thankfully they do do the right thing. January, 2010 at the Royal Rumble, Mickey pins Michelle in 20 seconds. She just decimates her with her big fat ass. I mean, she just beats the hell out of her and pins her in 20 seconds. She's so mad. Hey, you know what? As an owner of a fat ass, I will tell you, it's got some pretty like dominant um, properties to it. It's got some, it's got some good like powerful pros to having a big fat ass. So, <laughs> don't knock it until you've gone up against one. Mickey James, six-time women's champion in the WWE, but it only lasts a month because Vicky Guerrero arrives on the scene. She is going to help Lay Cool, and they help Michelle steal the belt back one month later. Vicky Guerrero, how dare you? This is followed by WrestleMania 26. It's just another 10 women take. WrestleMania this time was always just like, take every woman and shove her in one match. And then April 23rd on SmackDown, Mickey and Beth, Beth finally turns face and stands up against Lake Cool. Mickey and Beth team up to take on Lake Cool and a take team action. Lake Cool pick up the win here, April 23rd, 2010 on SmackDown. Unbeknownst to Mickey at the time, it's her final WWE match. She films it and she is released from the company a day before it airs. They tell her, we're moving in a new direction with the women's division. And also, uh, remember that time you were late for a bus on the European trip? That was the last straw. It's the worst getting those type of reasons for firing when you know the reason is just like, oh, we ran out of ideas and we're like, we're not invested in any of you enough to like make ideas so by like instead we're going to give you some weird bullshit thing that you're going to feel vaguely guilty about even though you know it's bullshit i hate i just hate that happens all too much in 
regular normie people lives. I hate, I, yeah, I hate it regardless. This is the period that leads right into the full-on Divas era where they stop hiring independent wrestlers for the women's division. They just start hiring models and fashion stars and train them to be wrestlers instead and train them to do like three-minute matches. So it does coincide with that, but then one also can't help wonder, this whole Piggy James storyline, this whole storyline with her being sent to SmackDown was arguably punishment for hooking up with Cena and that relationship not turning out. So we have to wonder if we can draw a straight line from, you know, Cena dumping her to her getting released less than a year later. I mean, the Divas era would become to be defined by, you know, a lot of women, but but especially among them, um, people involved with John Cena. So it pays to be in with John Cena and does not pay to be out with John Cena. In amongst all of this. Mickey is named PWI Woman of the Year 2009. She lands number one in the PWI Female 50. It's the second year for the Female 50, the first year Awesome Kong won, so Mickey is now the first WWE woman to win the PWI Female 50. And following her dismissal, Michelle McCool will win the award next year in 2010. Oh, great. Also, Piggy James to their credit, is named Most Disgusting Promotional Tactic for 2009 by the readers of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Ah, those... The, the, to, to the credit that, of Meltzer's readers. Oh my god. You know you've done something wrong when you get, like, a bunch of dudes being like, this was offensive. In retrospect, Mickey says, I think somebody thought I was fat, and they thought it was funny. They thought I gained a few pounds. They had no idea what was going on with me personally. They thought I had they thought they had an idea of something else. It was, let's humble her. Let's kind of devalue her a little bit, and then let's cut her loose, because she thinks too highly of herself, or whatever the case may be. And maybe that was part of it, too. Maybe they knew they were going to be releasing her in a couple of months, so we'll use her to put over Lay Cool in the time being, and we'll also like run her down so that she's not valuable to wherever she goes next. Yeah. I mean, except that, like, she's an irrepressible force and again like you can run a storyline where they call her names and everything but like at some point your audience you have to remember your audience has eyes like you can tell them someone is fat and they can look at that person and be like no she's not fat like and none of this is a, a wrong thing like if she were fat that's not a problem but like even by the most crass standards like if you're trying to devalue your performer by like trying to paint her in a different way to your audience, you have to remember that like at some point that audience is going to not be able to follow that storyline as you wrote it, because there's no, there's, there's no, there's not, there's no thing there. There's no, like you don't, you don't actually have a proof of concept. You just have, you just have a name calling contest. It doesn't work again. If you've got the dudes voting in a Wrestling Observer poll telling you that this is a terrible storyline and disgusting and no one likes it, uh, you, you did it real wrong. As always, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Patreon at Grit Glitter Pod. If you support us on Patreon for $5 per month, you get access to the Grin Glare archives, 
old episodes of season one of Grid and Glitter from 2019. You'll get bonus podcasts like Women's Wrestling Entertainment. This is an ongoing series Emily and I do where we cover the history of women in WWE in chronological order. There are nine episodes up already. Starting, episode one covers the birth of women's professional wrestling in America. We start back in the 1890s with the very first women's wrestling champions, and we continue on from there. Nine episodes are available already, taking us up to the summer of 1989, and there's another 10th episode coming your way in the next month or two, which is going to chronicle the start of Monday Night Raw. In the meantime, you can join us back here on the free podcast feed this Thursday, two days time for a special bonus episode. It is Living Legend, Mickey James, part two. In the second part of our biography, Mickey goes to TNA. She starts a country music career. She gets married and she wins a lot more championships. See you then.